Welcome to Grace and Truth with Father George Rutler. Join Father Rutler as he talks about Catholic culture and doctrine, including grace, goodness, laughter, and humility. Here now is Father Rutler. There are two kinds of intrigue. The first is a simple fascination. Uh, certainly no one who ever lived was more intriguing than Jesus of Nazareth. He intrigued those who listened to him, who saw him in his own day, and he continues to intrigue. Television programs have the highest ratings when they talk about him, whatever stupid things or wise things they may say. And so too with magazines. They sell the most copies when they have Jesus on the cover. They may try to sensationalize aspects of Christ. They may deny his existence, but his fascination continues uh, uh, to exist. But we will never understand Jesus if he only uh, intrigues us that way. Jesus was really the most transparent figure uh, who ever walked on the stage of history, literally so, when he was transfigured on the mountaintop before Peter, James, and John, a light came from within him. If the light came from without, then we would justifiably be intrigued by him as we're intrigued by a celebrity because the spotlight illuminates the celebrity. It's human attention, uh, admiration that creates celebrity. But uh, Jesus says, uh, you've not chosen me. I have chosen you. The light comes from within him. We can shut our eyes and he is still the Savior. The world can ignore him. He is still uh, the Savior. The saints understood this and they continue to understand it. And this is why the saints never are merely fascinated uh, with Jesus. He's not a celebrity to them. He is life itself. Uh, when the divine light of Christ transfigures the soul, raises the virtues to a higher degree, a heroic level, then we have the content of a holiness. The integrity of the personality, what someone is really supposed to be. Uh, in the Cathedral of uh, St. Louis, uh, in Missouri, one of the mosaics in that phenomenally beautiful uh, a church it shows the day of judgment. Christ is enthroned as the judge. And on one side are the saved, and on the other side are the damned. The saved souls have distinct faces. For the light of Christ, his saving grace, what, what we call sanctifying grace, his, his presence, uh, brings the human personality to a unique fulfillment. There are no two saints alike. On the other hand, the damned souls are covered with hoods. We cannot even see their faces. For the rejection of God and his glory casts us in, into the shadows. The ego overwhelms the true intellect and the will. This is a visual model of the fact 
that uh, uh, Jesus is the source of life for 2,000 years. People have considered what that meant. Theologians have tried to invent words to explain it. Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And by so saying, he moves us from mere fascination with him uh, to adoration. But there is a second kind of intrigue, and that, says the book of Proverbs in the sixth chapter, is an abomination uh, to God. Uh, this fascination is not harmless, it's not morally neutral, it's not the first level of approach to God. It is really a rejection of God and his goodness. For the kind of intrigue that is an abomination to God, and has been called that all along by the rabbis, and then by the prophets and, and the priests of the Holy Church, is the devising of wicked imaginings, the distortion of the imaginative faculty to plot against God. The whole passion narrative of Christ is a conspicuous drama of that kind of intrigue. When he was preaching, people began to plot how they could capture him. When he proclaimed his messiahship in his native synagogue in Nazareth, the crowd tried to grab him and throw him off the brow of a hill. It was not yet his time, and he escaped from their midst. But he was fully aware of plotting minds, and so uh, when he went into the garden of the agony, he sweats blood, and as he sweat, the plotters approached. The human intellect is a gift from God the imaginative component of the intellect can remember the past and can anticipate the future and so the imagination can civilize us by the inheritance of what has gone on before and it can encourage us by contemplation of what we can build, what we can design, what we can hope for. But that same imagination can turn in on itself. We can be haunted by the past. We can be threatened by the future. And we can use that imagination for destructive purposes. When our Lord was taken before Pontius Pilate, the crowd cried out, what no voice of a Jew in Jerusalem had ever said before. We have no king but Caesar. This unheard of surrender to civil authority as preeminent over the power of the Lord of Israel was clearly the result of the misuse of the imaginative faculty in intriguing against God. So with Pontius Pilate and Herod, 
in the passion, they intrigued. They became friends that day because they had plotted against Christ to s cement their own power. If you go through the passion narratives, you can identify every personality that's ever lived. All the foibles of the human race are on display in one character or another. No nation, no race, has a monopoly on good or on evil. And we cannot look at those personalities as though they are distinct from ourselves. For in every one of those characters is our own soul. God gives us the passion narratives edited from heaven, for we do not have all uh, the dialogue that took place, only what God wants us to know. That script from heaven is an examination of conscience before ourselves, how we intrigue against the divine design. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The ego resists that. And that's why we can look for 2,000 years at the way himself and find ourselves still wandering away from him. After 2,000 years, we can look the truth straight in the face and still lie about him. After 2,000 years, we can look at the Lord of life and still fall prey to the conceit that life is just a biological accident. The Greeks had a myth, really a parable, about the dangers of the autonomous ego. It was the story of Narcissus. Uh, Narcissus was the son of Cephasus and Liriope. He was fascinated with himself. It's a healthy thing to be fascinated with the self. Uh, the child spends the first six months of its life aware of practically nothing else but the self, discovering its own parts, its mm, mechanism for living. This is part of uh, natural growth. But there comes a moment when uh, the infant becomes aware of the world around it. The word idiot really means uh, someone who is totally aware of the self and only the self, oblivious to the other, uh, to other people, to the world, and to the holy other, which is God. Well, Narcissus was that kind of moral uh, idiot. He became enamored of his own reflection in the water. He wanted to discover, if you will, in the jargon of our day, the inner child. But anyone who wants to find the inner child uh, without locating the source of life in God is condemned to a perpetual infancy. 
an arrested a development of the soul. The autonomous self ignores the voice of the other. And so it was with Narcissus. For Echo called to him in love. Uh, she bid Narcissus to come and be uh, her lover. Narcissus uh, was so involved with himself that her voice fell literally on morally deaf ears. She dissolved into nothing but the voice, and that's how we get the echo. Narcissus himself ended up dissolved into a plant named for him. The pathology of modern man has consisted in that kind of moral deafness to God, and that is born of intrigue. For when we plot according to our own devices to reorder the world according to the lights of self-love, we ignore the voice uh, of God. Our Lord says, uh, to what shall I compare this generation? It is like uh, children in the marketplace uh, who uh, say we, we, we played songs on our flutes and you did not dance, we sang dirges and you did not mourn. That which is wicked about intrigue is self-idolatry. When our Lord goes to the cross, he displays for everyone who is intrigued against him the sublime fact that the light of the world had come into the world and was willing to endure a moral darkness so that the world might understand who he is and why he made the world and how he remakes it. Ailey, Ailey, la massa battani, he cries. Words so daunting that they're not translated. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has said that he's never alone. He always enjoys the beatific vision. Heaven is in him in the most desolate moment. But as he cries out there, he takes on the burden of man who has so intrigued against his own God that he begins to lose a grasp on who God is and consequently on what the soul is. Jesus always called God his Father, but in this moment God begins to become an abstraction. That's the problem with intrigue. That's the problem with the misuse of the imagination. When we try uh, to defy the mystery of God, when we try to reorder it according to the lights of our primitive and limited intellect, then he becomes a vacuous abstraction and virtually disappears. Our Lord has given us a purpose, and that is to serve him on earth, to give him delight, 
so that we uh, might be with him in glory forever. Now that's a very, very difficult under thing for people to understand if they have interpreted the world according to their own definition of the way to live, what truth is, and what is the biological and moral constitution of life. When the, uh, in the Second World War, uh, when a group of mathematicians and other very clever people finally cracked the Nazi code, the Enigma project, they had a problem. And the problem was this. If they were to uh, reorder the strategy of the armies, move populations from cities designated for bombing uh, too conspicuously, it would signal to the enemy that the code had been broken. Churchill had the very difficult decision of not evacuating Coventry for that reason. And many uh, thousands of people lost their lives. But on a larger scale, the war was more easily won and more lives were saved. One of the men who worked on that um, project uh, became a prisoner of war. He asked to be put into a barracks with other men in the hope that their snoring uh, uh, might uh, uh, conceal uh, his voice if he were talking in his sleep because he was afraid that by talking in his sleep he might divulge to the enemy that the code had been broken. Well, the Second World War is a war between nations. We are engaged all the time in something even more cataclysmic uh, than that world war. And that is the spiritual warfare of the soul. St. Peter knew all about that war. He had become a casualty of it by denying Christ. He was given in to a certain intrigue when uh, he sat by the fire and said, I never knew the man. But then, in humility, he recovered the right use of his imagination. And later on, as the Prince of the Apostles, he wrote to the churches, telling them to be sober and be vigilant, because our adversary the devil roams about seeking whom he may devour, and resist him steadfast in the faith. That warning has been part of the night prayer of the church century upon century, appropriately designated to be read or sung when night has fallen and the church is tempted to think that the light of Christ himself is hidden. Sobri stoti et vigilate, qui adversarius vesta Diabolos, tam quam leo rugiens cerquit querens quem devorate, qui resistite fortes in fide. You can almost hear the paws of the lion roaming about the soul. Satan is the great intriguer. 
all human intrigues pale by comparison to his great intrigue against Christ. The worst things that humans ever have ever done in history are mere playthings compared to the vicious scheming of the Prince of Lies against the Lord of Truth. He wants us to become part of his intrigue in our current generation. He wants us to use all the scientific information at our hands, all our skills, communication, to perpetuate his plotting against the divine design. He wants us to think that we have no home but our earthly dwelling. He wants us to think that there is no goal to our existence. After uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, had left the White House, he went on a safari in Africa, toured Europe, was wined and dined, given honorary degrees, and came back to his native city of New York, welcomed with a great pageantry, and rightly so. For Theodore Roosevelt was one of our nation's finest examples of natural virtue. But on the ship were two missionaries who had spent not a half year on safari, but many years in laborious service for the gospel and the salvation of souls. And when they saw all oh, this acclamation given, Teddy Roosevelt, one said to the other, uh, they don't even know we exist. And the other replied, but we are not yet home. Each one of us has a home with God. And the only way we can make sense of our earthly home, the only way we can properly use our scientific technology, the only way we can really know what to communicate with our new means of communication is to understand that we have a heavenly destiny. If we plot, if we intrigue against God, we will become the first casualties. For if life has no purpose, then there is no reason for us really uh, to exist, to put up with the challenges of uh, every day. The slothful soul, the soul given in to a sadness of the spirit, easily it surrenders to the ennui which has become the undercurrent of the fading uh, modern age. Our Lord does not condemn us for the mistakes we've made in culture. He does not condemn us for the sins we've committed by our intellect, by our will. What he does do is judge how we pick ourselves up and proclaim that he is the way, the truth, and the life. In that same Second World War, uh, the entire fate of Europe and consequently Western civilization hung in the balance in 1940 and 1941. Winston Churchill was one of those characters in history uh, who are hard to explain 
outside divine providence. Not that he was a mystic, not that he was a great confessor of the faith or a saint raised to the altars, but because he was a man with all the gifts needed uh, for that moment uh, to resist the denial of God instituted in a political system. He had been shunned for many years, and indeed after he had done his work in the war, he was shunned again and kicked out of office. But he knew, he had a sense that he had a purpose, that there is a way to live that is right, that there is a truth that must order the way we live, and that life is a gift uh, from God and must be preserved even to the point of laying down one's own life for the good of others. It is said that in some of the darkest days uh, of the Second World War, he would go out in the garden at 10 Downing Street with his cigar and singing in a, an unmelodious voice uh, a, a musical song that had been popularized by the Scottish vaudeville singer, uh, Harry Lauder. Harry Lauder made something like 17 farewell tours of the United States. But in those dark days, Churchill, who knew that across the channel there was an evil man and an evil system intriguing against God, this Churchill walked around the garden singing that simple musical song, keep right on to the end of the road, keep right on to the end. If the way be long, let your heart be strong. Keep right on to the end. If you're tired and weary, still journey on till you come to your happy abode where all you loved and you're dreaming of will be there at the end of the road. Our Lord told us that 2,000 years ago. If he merely fascinates us, it will be a puzzle and nothing more than a puzzle when we hear him say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he rose from the dead, he did appear on the Emmaus Road and said to those two men what he says to us now. At the end of a long period of intriguing against God by civilization in the West and in the East, how is it that I have been so long with you and you still do not understand? Please join us again next time for Grace and Truth with Father George Rutler on EWTN, Global Catholic Radio.